0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Here's our big idea this morning. God uses bad circumstances To spread his good news, God uses bad circumstances, the things that seem dark and shady and uh, uh, hard and difficult, he uses those circumstances for the purpose of his kingdom work in the world. We're going to see this in two particular phases in our passage this morning. First, the gospel's advance in Paul's imprisonment in verses 12 through 14. How does Paul's imprisonment have effect for the kingdom? And then secondly, in verses 15 through 18, we're going to see the gospel's advance in a divided church. How does Paul's detractors, those who disagree with him, how does that glorify Christ and push forth his kingdom work? So this morning, I want to dive right in. In verses 12 through 14, we just read it here this morning, but read with me as we see that the gospel's advancing in Paul's imprisonment. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, what happens is this surprising effect of Paul's hardships in verses 12 through 14. There's this kind of uh, twist, this turn that you want to see as God is working out the details of everything that's happened. In verse 12, he starts and he, he says that, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. See, naturally, we would think that Paul's imprisonment would lead to less gospel proclamation. This is the guy who's written two-thirds of the New Testament. This is the guy that does the missionary journeys. This is the guy that's uh, used by God to see the proclamation of the gospel, to see men and women converted to the faith in Jesus Christ, to see churches established in places like Ephesus and Philippi and other places. And so when he's in prison, we would expect for the total gospel proclamation to actually decrease. But Paul tells us that this is not the case. In the circumstance of Paul's imprisonment, the gospel is advanced. Explain the math. It doesn't make any sense, does it? And Paul kind of spells out exactly how this is the case in verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, we see that the effect of Paul's imprisonment on those around him in the kind of prison system that he's in, right? Verse 14 tells us that by Paul's imprisonment, the whole imperial guard has come to know of Paul's belief in Christ. Now, this uh, imperial guard, this praetorian guard, whatever you want to call it, they were like the Green Berets of Rome, right? They were highly trained Uh, the best of the best, they could beat you up. Now, anybody could beat me up, but they were obviously very good at what they did. It was a highly sought after position. And apparently part of their duty was to guard prisoners associated with Caesar. Remember, many had threatened Paul's life. As we read through the book of Acts, there was constant threat on Paul's life. And whether he was dealing with Gentiles or dealing with Jews in Jerusalem, there was a constant threat on his life, and therefore he's put under the protection of this imperial guard. But it's interesting that Paul sees his captors as a mission field. Paul sees those that chain him to uh, the prison cell that he's in in Rome as those that he can bear witness to about the person of Jesus Christ. I remember I was in college, and uh, a missionary came to our school to speak to us. Her name was Gracia Burnham. Her husband and her, uh, Martin was her husband's name. They were, he was a missionary pilot in the Philippines. And in 2001, they were at a resort celebrating 18 years of marriage and uh, Filipino activists of some kind, uh, this group is, is by the name, I, I have it written down somewhere here. The Abu Sayyaf group came in to this compound, uh, kidnapped them and took them off. For a year, they were in captivity under these uh, captors. And during this time, uh, they s- experienced 17 different kind of gunfights that were going on. The Filipino government would come in and try and rescue them, and uh, 17 times this happened. Well, on the 17th or the 18th time, sure enough, Martin Burnham was shot and killed. And Gracia luckily survived even though she was injured. But during this year and a half, she described how she had shared the gospel with her captors, those people that were holding her for ransom. See, we, in the midst of our difficult circumstances, can use those difficult circumstances to glorify and to magnify the person of Christ. But Paul also sees other benefits to his chains. In verse 14, he's going to spell out that the effect of Paul's imprisonment, not just on those that he's around immediately, upon those in the church and uh, the brothers in Christ. And Paul tells us that his imprisonment has led to boldness for gospel-proclaiming friends in Rome. And and he says that this isn't just a few people here and there. Paul says that most of the brothers in Rome have been encouraged in in their witness. Paul's example has significant effect on those who hear of his difficulty. You know, you, you, if you've ever played sports, what happens is that uh, if you play with bad competition, you play down to their competition, right? Uh, and when a teammate is playing well, ten, you tend to rise to the level of their competition. That's why I bring every team I'm on down, right? That's what happens, But it's like this in the kingdom. When when a brother suffers well and we see that, or a sister suffers well in Christ, we are elevated. We see the work of the Spirit, the transformation of the life right in front of us, and we're encouraged to pursue this witness. See, God uses our afflictions for his glory. We all know this, right? We, We quote the verse. We have it on a throw pillow somewhere, Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And we know this in our minds, but when we go through the difficult times at work, or we go through difficult times in our family, our health is, is threatened. When we get COVID-19, or we have cancer, or whatever else, and we're, we're feeling like the world is pressing on us, here it's harder to believe what Paul says to us. What we have in Philippians chapter 1 is a particular application of that verse. How is God working all things to good through Paul's imprisonment? He's working the good when Paul's imprisonment leads to witness to these imperial guards. He's working good when brothers and sisters are bold in proclaiming the gospel. It's a good thing for us to know, isn't it? God doesn't have setbacks. He doesn't experience delays. Our God never has to switch to plan B. Our God is never surprised by our circumstance because he's absolutely sovereign. And before the foundations of the earth, he knew exactly when you would draw breath. He knew every cell that was going to be on your body this morning. He knows everything about our world and our surroundings. He knows every happening that will happen after our church service today. Every happening, every thought that's going through your mind, he sees and knows it all. Psalm 139 confirms that before a thought is on my tongue, he, he knows it. He sees me in the unformed places. He knows about me and in the womb. See, our God has no plan B. He's fully sovereign. And I wonder sometimes if we actually know that, not just as a mental knowledge, but as a heart-filled, a a heart-giving trust in God's sovereignty. See, I wonder sometimes if I know that because I find myself anxious and worrisome. See, our anxieties and our worries are produced not by our concerns for God's kingdom, but our anxieties and our worries are produced by our concern for our kingdom. When we are oriented around the things of the earth, we become anxious and worried. When our prayer, though, becomes your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven, our hearts rest easy, don't they? Because God's will is always accomplished, and the things that look like setbacks and delays in God's kingdom really aren't that at all. See, Paul's inviting us to a reflection here to say, God doesn't waste suffering. God doesn't switch plans when a heavy hitter like Paul comes off the scene. God planned for Paul to go into prison that the body of Christ might push forward in the work of the kingdom, right? Now think about this here. Paul steps aside. He's imprisoned. He's locked down. He can write letters, but that's it. But that means that the church in Rome, the church in Jerusalem, the church here in Philippi, the church in Ephesus, they have to raise up new leaders to lead their congregations. There have to be new missionaries. There have to be new elders. There have to be new men called, new women called to ministry of the gospel. But surprisingly, Paul's imprisonment isn't the only problem that he faces. Paul has those in the church who who carry kind of this rivalry with him, and he's going to describe this in verses 15 through 18. These are believing brothers teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ who have division with Paul. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. See, Paul cites two types of preachers. There's some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Some preach out of goodwill. We thank God for those, don't we, this morning? Paul describes these in verse 16, the latter do it out of love for Paul, knowing that he was put there for the defense of the gospel. Remember, Paul has already described the Philippians' participation with him in in the defense of the gospel. And so he's writing, he's anticipating that these large majority of people are with him. These men and women, they love Paul. They are partners with him in the gospel. They preach the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's kind of looking at them and saying, some of you participate with me. Some of you join with me in the cause of the gospel. But others... This is what he describes in verse 17. Others preach out of envy and rivalry in verse 15. Look at what he says in verse 17. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And notice, let's just be careful here how we define this. These are brothers in Christ preaching the gospel, the life-giving gospel of Jesus. But Paul's critique is that they do so out of selfishness and this selfishness is defined by their envy and rivalry with paul see envy comes into a pastor teacher's life when he values others or other things more than he values god's kingdom work you know it's, it's not long before you stand in a room full of pastors where they start to talk about how big's your church how many dollars do you have in the bank? And there's all of these kind of uh, signs of health in our kind of little circles. And we can very quickly become envious of another person's congregation because we value differently than what the kingdom values. See, Paul sees this as personal. Isn't that how he speaks? Look at verse 16, the latter, do it out of love, knowing that I and put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. Paul takes this very personally. He says they're looking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And he says that this jealousy is directed at him. You might stop and say, man, Paul feels almost petty here. Wow, Paul seems like he's being just incredibly selfish. If Paul just ended his thought right there in verse 17, we might have reason to look back at Paul and say, Paul, you're just kind of wrapped up in yourself. You, you've got to be, stop being so self-focused, and you've got to start fix, fixing your eyes on the glory of Christ. But That's exactly what he does in verse 18. Look at what verse 18 says. He says, what then? Only that, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. This is surprising, isn't it? I mean, all of verses 12 through 17 have told us about Paul's problems. In verse 12, he kind of introduced us to this idea that he returns to in verse 18. But he's told us about his problems. He's told us about his imprisonment. He's told us about his enemies, those who preach Christ out of selfishness. Verse 18 then spins all of this information in a Godward direction. Look at what he says. He says, in every way. Literally, in all ways. That is, uh, no matter what is happening in Paul's life, the gospel is moving forward. Paul brushes his teeth in the morning. The gospel's proclaimed. Paul ties his sandals or whatever he does, right? The gospel goes forward. Paul is saying in everything, God, the sovereign God of the universe, is pushing his kingdom work forward. In every way, in all ways. It matches what we see in Colossians chapter 1. One of my favorite passages where Paul is writing, he's introducing this letter to the Colossian church, and he says, the gospel is always bearing fruit and increasing. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that even in the midst of a pandemic, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing? Doesn't it feel like we've been put on hold, like we hit the pause button on life for a year and a half? And yet, God is working his glory in the gospel right now. See, Paul is telling us unequivocally that God is always doing his work in the gospel. Just as Joseph could look at his brothers in Genesis chapter 50 and say, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. So Paul can look at his problems, his difficulties in life, and he could say, in every way, the gospel is advancing. Look what he says next. He says in verse 18, he, he says, in only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. That word pretense might also be translated as an outward showing. It's kind of putting on like a costume, a, a presentation for someone else. He's describing these other men who preach the gospel from selfish ambition. It's like they're putting it on like a costume. He defines his statement in every way. That now, whether they're ill-motivated or correctly motivated, the gospel is moving forward. You ever feel like you blew it? Like you had a gospel opportunity and you just dropped the ball? ever feel like your sin is so Uh, exposed, that someone else that knows you could never come to know Jesus Christ through your testimony. What Paul's telling us here is even those who are ill-motivated in the gospel are used by God for his kingdom purpose. Remember, God is the God who used a donkey to accomplish his purpose with his prophet. Surely Surely he can use my lips as well. So he says it happens in every way, in pretense or in truth. He says that Christ is proclaimed. That is the message of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed through Paul's circumstance. This message which God is constantly spreading in every circumstance throughout human history, throughout the world, is going forward. All things are culminating to the, the storytelling of Jesus' redemptive love and his death on our behalf. And finally, he he concludes with this. He says, in that, I rejoice. This is one of our themes in the book of Philippians. Paul's joy. Here he is, chained in prison, opposed by brothers in the gospel, and rejoicing. It's fitting in Paul's mind to remind these Philippian believers of his true joy in the gospel. Even as he sits chained to a wall in a prison cell, away from his home, away from his friends, away from his family, secluded, alone, desperate, he rejoices in the gospel. We might step away for a second and say, What do we have in these verses then? He's told us, Paul has told us of these two circumstances. His first is that he's in prison. And the second is that those preachers that oppose him are gathering like vultures. And what it shows us is that Paul's joy was not circumstantial. Notice that Paul avoids two extremes in his life. Maybe you and I have experienced these things. We, We either tend towards cynicism that says everything is going to go wrong somehow, or we tend toward naivete, that things aren't really as bad as they appear. You ever feel like that? Something bad happens, you're saying, oh, no, 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 no. It's not as bad as it looks, right? We tend toward naivete, or however you say that word that I can't really pronounce. Naivety, we'll say that, right? Or we tend toward a cynicism. Oh, it's not bad now, it's only gonna get worse. You ever feel like that? You have those two options in front of you. You know, uh, you're stuck in traffic somewhere in Dayton, which you don't want to be, nobody wants to be in Dayton, right? You're stuck in traffic and and it's not going anywhere. You're stuck there for a half hour or 45 minutes or whatever. And you're frustrated and you're saying, oh, it's only going to get worse. Or, hey, it's not so bad. But what Paul shows us is a, a third way. He shows us that there's a, sh- a path of gospel hope. Paul is looking through the grim reality of his circumstances to a glorious truth that, that God's gospel always does its work and that God himself is always moving his gospel see, Paul is, is looking at these circumstances and he's not tending toward uh, to kind of a cynicism and he's not trending toward a, a kind of a naivety about the situation. Rather, he's through a hope-filled, gospel-proclaiming hope. He's, he's looking past his circumstances and saying, God is going to accomplish this. And in that, I can rejoice. I can find joy even in a difficult situation because of the truth of the gospel. See, if you and I are hoping in the gospel, we can delight in the worst of circumstances. We can look at our difficult life, and we can say, fundamentally, God has given Jesus Christ in death, and as he's been resurrected to new life, my sins can be paid for at the cross, and therefore, whether I'm stuck in traffic, or I'm stuck in a dead-end job, or I'm having a difficult marriage or my kids are acting out or whatever else it might be I can look at that situation and say Christ reigns Christ will exalt me at some point in time Christ will bring me into his presence for all eternity and I can look beyond the immediate to what God is doing for eternity and I can find joy in that moment we need an example of how that might go. We need to no, look no further than our own Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus faced the worst of circumstances to establish the best of scenarios. Have you thought about this? Jesus Christ faced, faced the worst of circumstances to establish the best of scenarios. See, Jesus faced Increased rejection throughout his life. I've been reading through the book of John, and John is just this amazing story of, of Jesus' life. In John 6, you have this, this story about Jesus feeding 5,000 men, probably 10,000 with women and children, and all these crowds just kind of gather around him, and he takes a little bit of food and he feeds everyone that's present. By the end of John 6, though, after he's told them that he's the bread of life and that if anyone would come after him, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, they say, this is a hard teaching. And all of these 10,000 people leave him. To the point that he looks at his disciples and he says, will you leave also? Take that in John chapter 6. By the time we reach John chapter 19, it's not just that the crowds leave him is that they cry out, crucify him. They want this man dead. They don't want just nothing to do with him. They want him off the earth. And so Jesus faced a trajectory of increased rejection from those that he interacted with. If that weren't the worst thing, Jesus felt relational betrayal at every corner, didn't he? One of his own disciples who used to steal from the money bags, would sell him for 50 or 40 pieces of silver. The religious authorities, those that were his cousins and relatives, friends of his family, friends that he grew up around, these religious leaders around him, largely rejected Christ. Finally, the rejection by Pontius Pilate that was just a passive expression, a man who sees and understands Jesus and kind of uh, believes almost in some sense, uh, you know, understands that, that Jesus is the Christ, but still puts him to death. See, Jesus was constantly afflicted, constantly betrayed. And it culminates to this. When Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cry of dereliction, a cry that Jesus has been, in some sense, turned upon by his Father, that the Father in heaven sees all of the, the sin that has been placed upon Christ and turns his back upon his own Son, Jesus. Jesus is one who faced constant affliction. Why? See, the truth is this morning that Jesus faced rejection and affliction so that you and I could have acceptance in the throne of God. You and I are benefactors of Jesus' rejection. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, if we trust that Jesus has taken our sins upon the cross and been raised to new life, that we also someday will be raised to new life, we recognize that Jesus' affliction becomes our benefit. That Jesus has been invited into pain so that we could experience true joy even in the midst of our afflictions, like Paul. See, Jesus' death was redeemed by his father as an everlasting atonement for his people, so that you and I could be invited into the throne room of grace, that we could be participants, the partakers of the divine nature, as Paul said in Second Peter. You and I are recipients of massive mercy in Christ so that you are no longer just uh, tossed about by the, the waves of your circumstances. But instead, you are placed upon the rock, Jesus Christ. So the truth is this morning that you and I are recipients, benefactors of Jesus' suffering so that we can face suffering as well. Later on in this book, in Philippians chapter three, Paul's gonna talk about, he's gonna talk about his life before he was in Christ. He's gonna talk about the idea that he uh, was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he had done all of these righteous things. And he would say this statement in, in verse seven of chapter three, he would say, in regard to the law, I was blameless. Nobody could bring an accusation against Paul as far as righteousness or external righteousness was concerned. But then he goes on, And he says he considers all of those things rubbish. And he wants to take on the afflictions of Jesus Christ, that I may suffer with him, becoming like him in his death, so that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Is that your heart this morning? We might take on the afflictions of Christ as we're raised to new life in Christ because we can do so in the gospel. See, here's the question for us. The question for you and I this morning, is the cost too high? Is the cost too high? See, our gospel fidelity exposes our true allegiance. And conversely, our gospel infidelity exposes our true allegiance Our suffering will only be endured to the degree that we envision its connection with that which we love. So, Here's what happens, right? The athlete trains in the off-season so that he might win the championship. The, uh, the med student stays up late at night to prepare for his future degree. The Wall Street trader gets up early in the morning to do his work so that he can uh, make the money that he so desires. What we do as Christ is we endure the sufferings that come with knowing Christ in preparation for glory with Christ. But you and I, we swim in a culture that is so patently selfish. I heard this song earlier this week. And if you like this song, I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm not a country music guy, so I'm just going to say that. But Jordan Davis writes a, a song, and he says, "Buy dirt, find the one you can't live without, get a ring, let your knee hit the ground, do what you love, but call it work. And he says this, but throw a little money in the plate at church. Send your prayers up and your roots down deep. Add a few limbs to your family tree and watch their pencil marks and the grass in the yard will all grow up. Is that what following Christ is? Bringing a couple kids into the earth, having a good job, occasionally throwing a few bucks. Hey, I'm not opposed to you throwing a few bucks in the plate, right? Is that what it is? I'm going to take this and I want to compare it to Luke chapter 14. If, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm just going to invite you. I would I forgot to put it on the screen this morning, but just invite you to turn to Luke 14. We're going to look at verses 26. Actually, I do have it on the screen. I lied. I'm sorry. Luke 14. Just consider the words of Jesus as we look at verses 26 and 27. In verse 33, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let's just back up for a second. Jesus is kind of defining what it is to lay everything aside and come after him. And he's defining, he says, if anybody wants to come after me, they've got to be willing to do away with their family. Are you willing that the gospel would advance at the cost of your relationship with your family? Are you willing? Are you willing to put your family right there on the altar? It goes on in verse 27, he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Are you willing, are you willing to put your own health and well-being, your own existence on the altar as a sacrifice for the glory of Jesus Christ? Verse 33, he does it again. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Are you willing that the gospel would advance at the cost of everything you hold dear that doesn't please Christ? Are you willing? that's the call of the gospel it's not just a little addition to my life it's it's the center it's the heart it's the core it's everything if we are to pursue Christ we lay down our life we take up our cross we follow because Christ laid his life down we do the same and we count everything every loss as gain because of the glory of Jesus amen See, I wonder if there's any greater time for us as the present to count the cost. God's purpose in the gospel is becoming more and more clear as our nation becomes more and more divided, more and more separated, more and more fractured, more and more confused. The clarity of the gospel drops like a bombshell, and it brings the clarity of Jesus Christ to our people. See, I long for the day when we might send out missionaries and church planners, pastors and elders and evangelists and deacons and deaconesses. We might uh, raise those people up here at Gospel Community and raise up a witness of people here that have counted the cost and wrapped their arms around the purpose of the gospel in Jesus Christ. When we might see more baptisms and more discipleship and and more uh, fellowship and more teaching and more proclamation, all of this to the advance of the Gospel at any cost. All because we have learned to value what God values most, His glory in lost sinners like you and me. What's the cost? Is the cost too high? For Paul, it meant prison. For Paul, it meant his reputation. For Paul, it meant his former life. For some of us, it means different things. It means a career change. It might mean a a reorientation of how I pursue money or whatever else. Does your heart resonate with God's purpose, his kingdom purpose in the gospel? And like Paul, are we willing to say, I rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances because the kingdom, Christ, is moving forward and the gospel is proclaimed. Let's pray to that end. Let's pray that God gives us the strength to be that. Lord, we ask now. Lord, even in the weakness I felt this week, I need to be reminded of, your kingdom purpose or that you are advancing the gospel for your glory for your honor so lord allow our hearts and our minds to resonate with your purpose in the gospel pray these things in jesus name amen